It's that time again, Our Town Live, where friends, family, people you know, and others you'd rather not know share with us their unique bits of wisdom. And now, here's Herb, your host, for another show. Today, I'm talking about human trafficking and modern slavery. My guest, Nancy Hartwell, an American author who has written extensively on human trafficking. Nancy first became fascinated with this topic several years ago while living in Cameroon for 14 years. She was prompted to write the book when an acquaintance of hers, a German woman in her early 20s, mysteriously disappeared. It was later revealed that she was sold into the sex trade in the Persian Gulf, never to be seen again. Nancy has been collecting stories on human trafficking, turning them into three books, two fiction and one nonfiction. She has also examined the various aspects of human trafficking in the modern world. In this episode, we will discuss human trafficking, the slave trade. It's happening right under our noses. How does it still happen, even if it's against the law? Who are its likely victims? What do the slaves really do here? What can ordinary people do to stop this horrible practice? Now, here's my guest, Nancy Hartwell. Your specialty right now or your main interest or your books and things that you've been writing about have been about human trafficking. Tell me exactly what that means. Okay, well, this is when somebody steals another person and then makes them do things that normally they would not voluntarily do and not pay them for it. But they are under extreme duress, psychologically, physically, financially, and then are obliged to comply. What is the difference between human trafficking and human smuggling? Okay, smuggling is when people illegally take people from one place to another. For example, people trying to smuggle people across the border. That is smuggling. But but human trafficking does not necessarily involve transportation, although it often does. Who would be vulnerable to becoming a victim of domestic or international human trafficking? Okay, well, that's a pretty big question. (laughs) Young people are especially at risk, and runaways have a target on them the size of Texas. Um, There are predators lurking in bus stations, train stations, public parks, looking for people who look like they might be runaways. And they know all the buttons to push to get these young people to trust them. And then after a few days, they say, okay, sweetie, now you owe me big time. But mostly it's young people who are at risk. Young men for labor slavery. For example, the... World Cup facilities that will host the World Cup finals in 2022 are in Qatar on the Persian Gulf. These facilities are already under construction and they are being built by slave labor. Recruiters go to nearby poor countries where it's hard to find a job, offer a fabulous job. The young guys sign what looks like a perfectly legitimate labor contract, then they pay for their transportation to Qatar. When they get there, they confiscate their passports. 
make the guys work 18-hour days under 130-degree heat. They have been averaging a death a day, and nobody knows. Do they do young women? Of course, are 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 um, at risk for sexual trafficking. Labor trafficking is actually much more prevalent, but it's more fun to talk about sex slavery. So um, that gets a little bit more press. <laughs> on on the labor side, what are we talking about as far as money for the people that are doing this? Is it very profitable? I mean, for, Oh, it's very profitable. If, if you don't have very much labor costs, if your labor costs involve just sending a recruiter somewhere and paying airline tickets for somebody to come to work for you, and then you don't have to pay uh, salaries, you don't have to pay benefits. Um, it, 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 yeah, it it's uh, it's very lucrative. By the way, a pretty young blonde can retail easily for more than $100,000 on the Persian Gulf. Oh, my. Ten, that's a million dollars. And as long as somebody's going to pay those prices, somebody is going to supply the market. Uh, back to the labor. As far as the labor, who who perpetuates the kidnapping or the smuggling? Do the, do the contractors, do the people that use them for yeah. building? Or, or, do, or are there middlemen? Yeah. That have, or both? Both. In Southeast Asia, um, the fishing industry is heavily dependent on slave labor. If you have frozen seafood in your freezer from Thailand, Vietnam, Malaysia, or Indonesia, there's about an 80% chance that it involves slave labor. And it's exactly the same technique. They go to Cambodia or Laos, offer fabulous jobs. And then the guys get there and they're betrayed. And if they don't perform up to snuff, they just dump them overboard. My. How would somebody recognize a victim? Are there any telltale signs that I, I could see somebody and know that there, there's an issue? Well, there are a few. It's, it's hard because they're, they're usually so spooked they don't want to talk to anybody. But remember that guy in Cleveland a couple of years ago who managed to keep three women locked up for 10 years? Oh, right next door. Yes, right. Yeah, right in plain view. Mm -hmm. And, okay, if you see locks outside, that's to keep somebody in. It's not to keep bad guys out. Wow. Somebody who is dressed very inappropriately for the, for the weather. If it's 40 degrees and they're just wearing a sweater, you might want to just take note. Don't try to investigate yourself because these are not nice people. But take pictures if you possibly can. Note down time, date, et cetera, and then turn the information over to the authorities. Where would I find a victim who has been trafficked for sexual exploitation? I live in Atlanta. Uh, are there any places yeah. that, that people like this congregate? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, there's in in almost every big city, <clears throat> there's there's a red light district or a place that you know if you drive by real slow, you can pick up a prostitute. About 99% of prostitutes are not there voluntarily. Um, and they're controlled by a pimp who 
demands 300 500 even $1,000 a day minimum quota. And if she doesn't bring him that $500 a day, she gets beaten to a pulp um, in front of all the other girls that he controls. Some of them are even physically branded, and I'm talking a hot iron branded. Hmm. They have been betrayed, deceived, lied to, exploited so many times that that they hardly even trust the the people who are generally trying to help them. I used to work with a shelter in Baltimore that rescued girls from the streets. And it was very, very hard to help them because they didn't trust anybody. This mm-hmm. shelter tried to give them their high school education because most of them dropped out when they were 13 or 14, give them marketable skills and give them a comfortable, safe place to live. But even so, a few of them were so traumatized that as strange as it may sound, they actually went back to the streets because in a grotesque way, it was all that was familiar to them. You know, I I know we talk a lot about sexual exploitation. We don't talk a lot about the the laborers, the the men. And I, I, I realize it's not sexy and it's not something to talk about. What is the percentage of those in relation to the to the sexual exploitation? Well, of course, exact figures are real hard to come by because the predators don't turn in monthly reports to the Department <laughs> of Labor. <Right. laughs> sure. So I would say probably 65, 35% hmm. labor against uh, the sex trafficking. And there are some of them right here in the United States. Mostly in agriculture, massage parlors, and nail salons. The Chinese and Vietnamese are very, very, very well organized for these um, massage parlors and nail salons. They have some people who are specialized in getting business licenses to make it appear like this is a perfectly legitimate, normal business that belongs right between the ice cream parlor and the barbershop. They have other people specialized in, quote, recruiting. Other people specialized in breaking the places down. If they hear there's going to be a police raid, they can break it down in about 45 minutes, and then they just move to the next county. Without getting political, would you say that the caravan issue that we're in now would be a way for these people to to come into the country? The, The problem is that when they come to the country, then there are these, quote, coyotes who promise to take them across the Arizona desert to a safe place, okay? Mm -hmm. These coyotes, most of them are crooks. They charge a lot of money to these people, and then they take them straight to a, a slave labor camp where they are kept behind tall fences. They don't have the slightest idea of where they are. They wouldn't even know where to run if they could get away, and they can't. And so then they're stuck picking strawberries or or whatever for free, of course, Um, and the coyote gets paid for bringing them there. So these people are putting themselves at extreme risk, even if they manage to get into the country, which is already a, a, a big issue. 
So I know that that life in Honduras is probably hell, but they haven't experienced hell until they've they're forced to work in a slave labor camp. How did you get involved? Okay, well, about 45 years ago, I had a friend who disappeared. A beautiful, tall, blonde German friend, Ursula. And they found her bicycle next to the road and no Ursula. And nobody has heard from her or seen her since. Several weeks later, we heard rumors that were probably true that she had been sold to a sultan in Libya. And that spooked me because 45 years ago, I was a pretty cute blonde myself. And I kept thinking, holy moly, that could have been me. Hmm. And I started collecting stories. And finally, um, I had time to write a bunch of these stories down. And I have three books on Amazon about victims of this crime, one of which I'm pleased to say reached number seven in all fiction on Amazon. It's called Harem Slave. And it's also been translated into French, Spanish, and German. Hmm. And it's a story of a girl from Maryland who uh, was visiting some friends in France and got kidnapped and found herself in the harem of an 81-year-old sheikh. Hmm. Have you actually met with a lot of these people that have gotten involved? I've met with some. Most of them never get out. The, the ones who are shipped to the Persian Gulf, you'd never see them again. But but I have talked to a number of, of people who were on this forced to be on the streets and then and then managed to get rescued or managed to escape one way or or another. Oh yes, indeed. And the stories they make you want to just your they break your heart. In all this time, what has been your most significant career accomplishment? My most significant career accomplishment. Oh. Well, I think writing The Harem Slave has gotten the word out to more people than any other thing I have done. I have also had more than 700 radio and television interviews now in 30 countries trying to educate the, the people that this is still a real problem that we, don't, we shouldn't uh, bury our heads in the sand about. What is your worst professional experience? that you'd rather not repeat? <laughs> I had some friends. This is when I lived in Cameroon. My my husband was from Cameroon. And I I had some friends who were murdered there. Um, it looked like the there was going to be a cover-up. And so a major in the gendarmerie and I decided we were going to solve the murders ourselves. And we did, and we almost got murdered ourselves in the process, but we oh, cracked my. the case. <laughs> oh, did you write it? Have I'd you rather not go through that again. Have That's you written another whole book? <laughs> I, I was going to say, have you written about that yet? Or are you going to? <laughs> well, I've 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 made attacks at it, but I can write for about thirty minutes, and then I start to shake, <laughs> and I have to lay it down. Uh, <laughs> but I did I did manage to escape um, and most of the people involved finally came to justice it took some years but it finally justice was, was finally served who would you say has been the biggest influence 
on your life? My dad. My dad was a very wise person. He was also very funny, and it, it was it was fun growing up with him. He was a very, very dedicated person. He believed that uh, we're on this planet to help other people, and but he made it fun. And he he spent his whole life um, dealing with the mentally retarded or with the Boy Scouts. So he he had a huge, huge effect on me. And I think he's one of the reasons that I'm I'm still a, a dogged optimist. <laughs> what, what was his profession? Always things are going to work out. What did he do? What was his profession? Well, he he was a professional uh, scout executive, oh. and then he became director of the McDonald Training Center here in Tampa, which is world-renowned for very progressive um, treatment of and activities for the the mentally retarded people come from all over the world to visit it and find out their approaches in your years what's the most important thing you've learned about people over these years well i've been to i've been to 45 countries and there are wonderful people and there are absolute jerks everywhere (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that sums it up very well. <laughs> you covered you covered all the bases with that one, right? <laughs> what? Yeah, but I I still like people. I I strike up conversations with people in elevators in the line at the grocery store. I I I still like people, and and most of the time it works out it works out just fine. Some of them. People that you've worked really hard to help turn up to stab you in the back, but that's part of life. You know, it just comes with the territory. What has happened to you to put you at your lowest low? Okay, that would be when when I was deported from Cameroon because of those because of my investigating into those murders. Oh. Um, I went to my brother's house in rural North Carolina and sat there and shook for three months. Mm. Um, I love, love, love to bake, and I was incapable of of even baking a brownie. One day, my brother came home, and he smelled fresh bread, and he said, Oh, I think somebody's feeling better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that was the toughest part of my life. On the other side of that coin, what has happened to you to put you at your highest? Well, that was probably the day that I discovered that Harem Slave had reached number seven in uh. all fiction on Amazon. I had done a radio interview in New York City, and the next day I had 720 downloads. And that that put me over the moon. <laughs> Would you say it's because of the money you earned or what you had accomplished? It's because of what I had accomplished, uh, without a doubt. Uh, the money is nice. I'm not going to send that back. But I'm trying very hard to educate people about the reality of this problem. And I'm obviously not doing nearly enough because the problem keeps getting worse. But I keep trying. Have you ever had a strange encounter that you can't explain? Oh, I've had dozens. <laughs> <laughs> another, another book. Um, 
Yeah, another book <laughs> talking, you know, uh, small world experiences. There was one time when I was living in Maryland, I got a phone call from a friend of mine who was visiting Washington from Cameroon. And I said, oh, Peter, come tomorrow night. I'm having some friends over for dinner. So he came. And this retired engineer from down the hall in the apartment building also came. And they sat on the couch and they stared at each other and they kept staring at each other and count, 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 count. It turns out they had worked in Ethiopia 17 years before together. Oh, my. And there they are sitting on my couch. (laughs) As a warning to others, what part of life would you put a big warning label on? Young people, be careful. (laughs) It might sound harmless. It might sound like fun. But you don't want to screw up the rest of your life. So please, please, please be careful about what you do. Girls, no matter how much he says he loves you, do not send a picture to him that you would not like to see on the front page of a newspaper. When you're 15, it may seem harmless enough. But 20 years from now, when you want to run for mayor, guess what? He'll still have that picture. So be careful. Think about what you want your life to be 20, 30 years from now and not just the next 15 minutes. What's your favorite word? My favorite word, I think, is bamboozle. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know its origin. My next to the favorite word is nincompoop. And I did (laughs) learn that that comes from non-compass menti, which means not in good mental health. But those are those are my, my favorite words. How about your favorite sound? My favorite sound would probably be the doorbell when friends are coming over. And your least favorite sound? Um, police siren. Do you have an overused phrase that you use? Oh, I try very hard to be to edit myself and and make sure that I don't wear expressions out. And when I edit other people's books, I'm very conscious about the fact that they say, turned to and said four or five times a page. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, I, I, I don't think that I do. My, my friends might tell you otherwise, but I, I don't think that I do. Do you have a favorite smell? Brownies. Oh my! Uh, the, it makes the whole the whole house smell wonderful, and you can't write about human trafficking all day long. It's just too just too depressing. So when I can't function anymore, I go and bake a batch of brownies. And it got to the point that people said, "You know, you should write a cookbook." So I did, and I have heavenly brownies available on Amazon with 101 different brownie recipes. And I'm going to have to come out with a second volume because I keep thinking up other ones like white chocolate, dried cherry, macadamia nut. <laughs> oh, wow. You're making me hungry. <laughs> do you, do you, do you like, do you prefer dark or blondies? 
I I usually prefer dark, but I I really also like white chocolate brownies. Some people want to call them whiteies, but I think that word was already used for some other purpose. So I just call them <laughs> white chocolate brownies. <laughs> Listen, our time has flown by, and you do these all the time, I'm sure, with people like me. But we want to thank you enormously, and I would like you to tell my audience if there's such a thing, a way for them to get in touch with you, if they'd like more information about you, about your books, about what you do, how can they get in touch? Yes, um, they can check out my website, nancyhartwell.com. By the way, there is a five-part course on the 21st century slave trade that gives tons and tons and tons of information about how these predators operate and also some tips for parents to be able to help protect their kids from from these predators. Um, And there are links to my books and I do a monthly newsletter. All I need is your email and and I'll add you to the list for the for the monthly newsletter. So nancyhartwell.com. Where can they get? Of course, it's available on the website. Wonderful. There's a, a picture there that gives me the spooks. There was a maid in Saudi Arabia who served coffee late one morning, mm-hmm. so they poured boiling water all over her. Oh my gosh! And that there's a link to that picture on in in that in that course. I I it just gives me the heebie-jeebies every time I think about it. Is and that it, was for serving coffee late. Uh, just imagine if she had done something really wrong. My, is there one parting word you'd like to give the audience? Yes, parents, please monitor your kids' social media sites. Um, These sites have become real recruiting grounds for predators. Even the video online games, there's a 40-year-old pretending to be another 11-year-old. Make sure you know what your kids are doing on these websites do it with them so you can show them sites that have lots of red flags or pictures that never in a gazillion years should have been posted on the internet. And please talk to your children about this problem. We talk to them about other dangers, but for some reason we shy away from this one and have a family password. That way, if if uh, somebody tries to pick up one of your kids and say, oh, your mom couldn't make it here, so she sent me, the kid can say, what's the password? And if he doesn't know it, the kid knows not to leave with him. Wonderful. Me and my audience, thank you for your time, and we'll be in touch. Thanks for listening to Our Town Live, and don't forget to subscribe and give us a review.